0: Today, we shine a spotlight on Project Records and its owner and founder, Sam Rosenthal, who's run the label for 35 years. Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com. To learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talked to Sam Rosenthal, the founder and owner of Project Records, about changes in the industry, positive and negative. It's all coming up on the future of what? Support for The Future of What comes from Exchange. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Sam Rosenthal of Project Records. Sam, welcome to The Future of What. Yeah,
1: thank you for having me. This is awesome.
0: So I think you might have the oldest label that I've ever done a label spotlight on because you've been doing it for 35 years. That's right. Were you like five when you started?
1: <laughs> I started in, I guess, high school. Wow. I was making a fanzine at uh-huh. first and then... A, Involved into also doing the label.
0: So, where did you grow up?
1: I was in Fort Lauderdale. Oh,
0: okay. Florida is that a hotbed of ambient dark wave
1: music? No, I mean the fan scene was covering some of the bigger bands, New Order or Robert Fripp or something like that. But then there were local bands, usually more rock, but there was somewhat of a New Romantic scene. And oh. so I was more into the New Romantic kind of bands. And then the first cassette was. I think it was all instrumental, different people doing weird electronic music. Oh, wow. And so no, I don't think there was anything that was called goth that I knew of <laughs> back then.
0: So would you call Project a a goth label? Is that your genre?
1: I think it's really split into two sides. There's a dark wave goth side and then there's an electronic ambient side. But the initial label was I guess, yeah, first electronic, then more goth, and now it's sort of a mix with more emphasis on the electronic side.
0: Right. So let me ask you a question just from a purely business standpoint. Does that type of music stream well?
1: The electronic side, yes. Strangely, it's more Pandora than Spotify. Ah. Where the goth artists, the most popular artist, Voltaire on that side, he's much more YouTube for where his streaming is at.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of, you hear about Spotify, you talk about Spotify, but then strangely, it's not the main source of the income
0: i think that's true across the board for everyone you know every artist on our label is different in terms of whether they do well physically or streaming or Mm -hmm. you know wherever but that's interesting that pandora because pandora that sounds to me like people are putting it on in their house and listening to it like they would a radio station
1: lately pandora's made their information more available and the interesting thing is a lot of the play is secondary where they're playing another artist and then the next one recommended it's a project artist because it's similar they've decided oh, cool. or there's a new age genre station that sure. steve Roach often gets played within yeah but it's not on the paid side where people are specifically picking that artist to listen to gotcha it's more on the what pandora originally was the recommendation kind of side
0: right and how about physical how do your artists do physically Is also different differs from artist to artist
1: well i think that Everyone, of course, has declined in it. So Voltaire does really well physically on his new releases. And then Steve Roach does catalog as well as new stuff. Gotcha. I recently checked and there's like 86 artists who currently have something that's available through the digital or the physical side, but you know, the top six or so are the ones that are generating most of the income, so. Right. You know, you kind of have to talk about the different tiers of the label, I guess, for who's doing what.
0: So now, do you do this, is this your full-time gig, or do you still have a day job of some sort?
1: Yeah, so I've been doing it full-time since 91. Oh, great. So like, yeah, so the label's first cassette was 83, the first LP was 86, the first CD was 89, and... I was doing a computer graphic job that was paying really well so I could put out CDs without really worrying about it. But then suddenly I'm like, okay, this was pre-internet. This was fax days. So I can't go away for two months and do this computer work and not be there to deal with all the business that the label needed. So in 91, I kind of had to scrap the thing paying really well for the time <laughs> to do the label.
0: Awesome. And so you've been doing it for 27 years.
1: Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. Do you do it by yourself or do you have other people helping out?
1: Well, it, The peak, which was maybe 97, there was 11 people who were working at the label. And nowadays, there's a guy who runs the mail order store in Philadelphia and then a really part-time helper. She's worked for me since 2001. Wow. So she's in New York still. Wow. So yeah, the other thing is I I lived in Florida, LA, Chicago, Brooklyn, and now here.
0: So you've left little project nests in different
1: places. (laughs) Uh, Kind of. I mean, the Chicago one really dissipated, and Mm -hmm. but that was... Well, the other thing is the label... I guess I it was always a mail order thing as the basis for it, uh-huh. and then in ninety seven we hooked up with Ryko Distribution, so it went from nagging people to pay you to having a legitimate nationwide company. Right. But the mail orders order always been there as a core part of how the fans connect to the label. Sure. And so the mail order has always been near me until I moved here, and I was like. I'm gonna you know, give this to the guy who Joe who runs a record store in Philadelphia also does it. Perfect. And it's he I think has four different mail order businesses that he does. Nice. And it means I don't have to think about ordering other label stuff we sell as well.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. That's nice. We did that for a long time too, distributed other stuff and that is really
1: that's a lot more work than it yeah sounds well, like it's gonna be. There was a time when we were like selling a thousand copies of another label's records mm-hmm. through the mail right you know just like a band faith in the muse or some german bands like jeton Demon, or something and it's it's you know it's very obscure out there world people yeah stuff but there wasn't another way to get it until borders started getting interested and then riko to borders we were you know a really obscure project release would do three thousand cds in the mid 90s and it was wow. not a band that was getting any press or anything
0: yeah that's those were the days right yeah <laughs> sure <laughs>
1: yeah. and but so i don't know everyone is like or 5% of what they used to be. I know. So It's tragic. Physical. It's really a strange time. Yeah.
0: Now you do all this and you are a musician yourself. So, I mean, that's a lot of work.
1: (laughs) Yeah. My band is Black Tape for a Blue Girl and I'd say the label mostly started so I could do my own music without somebody else being in charge and telling me what to do. Right. And then from the first release in 86 through the early 90s, mid 90s, It was sort of the best-selling band on the label, and it sort of pulled the label along to places. Then the label got so busy that I just didn't have time to do it as often. Right. And and then I had a son, and there was this gap of not a lot of music. But so since moving to Portland, I've been focusing on my own stuff again.
0: Right. Yeah, because don't you have an album that's out now?
1: Yeah, um, an album, To Touch the Milky Way, just came out. And then, I guess it was two years ago, These Fleeting Moments came out. And then in between, I've also had like instrumental electronic albums that I've done.
0: Right. And your Black Tape for a Blue Girl is like a collaborative project? Like you get different people on different records?
1: Yeah, I kind of see it like I'm a director. Uh-huh. And I'm the film director and I have the story and I bring in people who are going to play the parts. And sometimes it's like an all-new band and then some people stay over, depending on who makes sense for what I've written for it. Right. And there's one main vocalist, Oscar, who's maybe seven of the albums he sang lead vocals on. And... You know, you always look back in time and go, yeah, in 96, it would have been much smarter if I had spent my time with Oscar and the band touring, <laughs> but the label was just so busy right then. Right. 96, 97, that era.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of the label owners that I've interviewed have done it that way like there's kind of two types of label owners there's people who are like straight business people they're not artists themselves and they just are running labels because they're fascinated by the business side and then there's people like you and then like laura balance from merge obviously her band super chunk was off was the biggest band on their label for a while and then like mark robinson i interviewed him same deal he's been doing music throughout you know his whole label career as well so I think that that's I think that's cool. I think that's cool that the, both of those things can exist because, as you know well, like the business is like pretty serious. It's not light. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
1: I think if I had looked at it just from the business side, I would have not done it after some point. Just, <laughs> I mean, I was one hundred eighty thousand dollars in debt at the end of the nineties. Whoa! And it was all credit cards. It wasn't like right. something you know nineteen percent interest or whatever. And it was just. Most business people would say, "Mm, this hasn't worked out, (laughs) but there was still a lot of cash flow at the same time. So, you know, in the middle of the 2000s, it would not have worked out because of the dot-com bust and then the next things. But I was able to just really cut back down to just me and one employee for a while so that I could get rid of all the debt.
0: Right, and then stay in
1: business. Yeah, I, I really thought we were on the, okay, we got like two more years of this record business left, and then this has been the best year in almost 10 years.
0: Isn't that weird? That is the weird, I agree, because like the last three years, the music business has really sort of come surging back. And it's funny because everybody, like you said, talks about Spotify, mm-hmm. but it's not really, it's not really, you can't really say Spotify. You have to sort of look at the whole industry, right? Mm-hmm. To understand why we're doing so well.
1: Yeah, I mean, for project. I'd say Bandcamp does as much as iTunes now. Yes. And, you know, I don't think people outside of labels really realize how much Bandcamp is doing. And for me, I'm like, oh, please don't screw this up. Every other tech company decides how they can screw it up at some point. Right. And it's just been really good.
0: Yeah, no, Bandcamp's been amazing, for sure. And I think it's funny because we have been putting our catalog on Bandcamp for years just because we really liked them we thought that they were a great partner and you know we enjoyed their we thought their model was great and now i think we're one of the four biggest labels mm-hmm. on bandcamp because we just have such a ridiculously massive catalog yeah and i think it's actually really hard now for people who go to look at bandcamp to look at our stuff cuz you just scroll and scroll and scroll like it's kind of crazy i'm sure your catalog is really similar
1: yeah i mean i think a lot of the people are we're directing them into bandcamp mm-hmm so I don't see a lot of people buying three records at once Mm -hmm. it's very much single order right? well like we just were having a 50% off sale and then suddenly you'll see four or five together right? but same is true with the physical I mean there was a time when the label I thought sort of it cross pollinated between the dark wave side and the goth side because the mood might somehow be similar but I think over time people have become more one or two artist fans where when the label only had 20 releases it was easier to right for them to know the whole label
0: right right that's interesting what do you and how has it been for you guys because the other part of i mean one of the many other parts of the business economy right now is sort of like deluxe
1: packaging Mm
0: -hmm. like lps that are fancy and really you know people have been loving that have you guys been seeing a lot of traffic in that
1: so i've only done those kinds of things for my own band so far Mm -hmm. where i I kickstart black tape for blue girl releases so i can make like deluxe things that Right. The way I'd want to make that you could never, well, I mean, you couldn't sell them in stores and make enough back on them to cover the costs. Right. And so there's some catalog stuff that we're going to reissue on vinyl, but we haven't really done a lot of new deluxe releases. I think it's unknown anymore how many copies you're going to sell of something. So you're like, the last really big thing I did was Project 200. So it was, yeah, a while ago, because I'm on release 357. Uh-huh. But it was like a three CD label retrospective in this DVD size box, all really nice. And then it just ended up being so much at stores in, let's say, 2006, when CDs were so dying at stores that right. I guess I felt kind of stung by yeah, doing oh, yeah. that kind of thing again. Because it's like, oh, I have 2,000 of these left, and they ended <laughs> up costing me $18 each for the ones I sold. Oh, man. So it was yeah, that's right. That's hard.
0: The Stars by Black Tape for a Blue Girl. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Sam Rosenthal of Project Records. Do you guys find, because I've found that there's still like a true CD market because of Amazon, because people really like to order CDs from Amazon for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, I mean, Steve Roach, I would say, sells more through his own web store than we sell at Amazon, just oh, directly. So yeah. so he's been putting out records since 82 and had some really big releases that got clumped into the new age category, even though they are they have much more depth than what you think of the new age term. And he was nominated for a Grammy in January was when the awards were. Yeah. And so he sort of has the people who come directly to him because they're going to get signed and they're going to get stuff in with it. So Amazon is definitely still important, but it's interesting, like, our distributor in Italy who sells to Europe is ordering three times as much as our American distributor now. Wow. Yeah, on physical things.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah,
1: and so, and they sell to Amazon, but also to specialty stores, because in Germany, there's, like, this gigantic goth dark wave specialty mail order company that the guy does 1,500 orders a month, not only on us, but, I mean, on everything. Right. And it's just, like, that's a massive... Audience, they are still buying stuff because it's always seemed like they're maybe four or five years yeah. behind as far as where their digital is right. at.
0: Yeah. Now, because you have a big market in Europe, do you travel over there ever? Do you meet with your distributors or like how do you connect yeah. with those people?
1: I haven't been over there in a while and my son is getting older and there was a time when get away so much. But yeah, I've been to the Italian distributors place 10 times I guess because I've known I've worked with him since 1991 mm-hmm. but the the new guy with the shop is called DJ dead we're just like hey you want to be projects European web store and he goes like sure because yeah. you know people are now paying $15 to get a CD shipped to Europe and it's crazy because the CD is yeah, costing 14 right okay. and so they can buy from him and I think it's two euros in Germany for shipping or something wow yeah so, and talk with my web store guy and it's like, yeah, we lose two sales but we make 30. So, you know, (laughs) it works out. It works out, yeah.
0: Just because that's of interest, I'm sure, to people, you know, that we haven't talked about that much on this show about, you know, being a US label that has actually pretty good sales in other territories Mm -hmm. and like how you sort of work with those relationships and make those relationships work. Like my distributor is Red Eye and they, in the last five years, have really made a huge effort to like establish themselves in different territories in Europe so they're kind of doing a lot of the legwork for us. But there's definitely also a lot to be said for like just doing it yourself and going and meeting with your partners.
1: Yeah, I think the problem, every European distributor I hook up with is like, great, we'll take 50 of each. I'm like, you know, there's like 220 releases in print. We're not sending you 50 of each. And then most of the time, England's always been, whatever they take, they never sell anything. You right. know? So this guy in Italy, he's been with different companies, but he's been with this one, I think, 20 years now. Uh-huh. And he just, has the dark wave goth post rock all kinds of different things market now where he knows who are the buyers and so he ends up reselling to burtis or amazon or other places and i've just worked with him so long i really trust him if he says don't do this do that it's like you know your market and i think i think As an American, we went over there going, oh, I know this and I know that because it worked in America. And people are like, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, there's
0: nothing like the UK to teach you what you don't know about a market. It's fascinating. It's like everything is the opposite in the
1: UK. Yeah, and even like labels who license my records, it's like for my own band. And they want to do something. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. And to their market, it did. Right. Yeah, so Sebastian at Audio Globe is the company in Italy. And I was like the best man at his wedding and went and hung out with them. It's just like, cute little house up above florence and it's oh wow yeah and it's, it's interesting because when you go on facebook or spotify and it says country with the most fans italy and mexico are always alternating for number one wow. i don't know why it's not the usa but so it's not like i sell more black tape over there but people who somehow indicate their country in those places so I, i'm trying to get to mexico just to do like a meet and greet
0: yeah. and
1: go to italy just to meet journalists and Basically cool. go on a trip. Yeah, smart. <laughs> yeah. That's exciting. So Mexico, we're trying to figure out a crowdfunder that basically pays for me to get there. <laughs> and then I bring CDs and give it to the people who <laughs> bought stuff. Yeah. So I get to like come and be Santa Claus and yeah. they, they pay for the trip. So
0: That's fascinating. Do you have any thoughts on whatever is going on with the current administration in terms of you know, our new trade deals with Canada and Mexico, like, do you think that's going to have a big impact on music
1: sales in these territories? I just haven't been able to sell anything into Mexico in so long because of the the value of their currency and and they get paid. So I, I don't really know. Yeah. I don't know either. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Good answer. I have no idea. It is interesting though, because South America, Latin America is like really opening up right now as a market digitally. Mm -hmm people are really getting excited about that how do you feel about that
1: yeah i mean it's weird when you dig deep into like apple music and you go to like ghana or you go to you know Ethiopia and you're like three people played steve roach in ethiopia on one of these services and it's just like i mean they're out there it's just no idea how how would someone ever hear about this (laughs) and i was emailing with a guy in india who was like saying oh but spotify is not in india or one of the services and he was like 70 and he's been listening to music forever and he loves some of these bands. And I, it's just, I always just find it really interesting to just start communicating with these people and yeah. discover what it is, how they connected to it. You know, maybe he was a big fan of Eno and Tangerine Dream. And one day on some <laughs> radio station, he heard Steve Roach. And, right. And then wow. it's just interesting.
0: Yeah, it is interesting.
1: And then it's also interesting with the crowdfunding, the backers, because there are people who like the music enough to get $500 on every other campaign or whatever. And I'm like, who are you? Where did you come from? <laughs> How did you discover my music? You know, right. Yeah, so just really interesting to reconnect with. I mean, I feel there was a period where you didn't really talk to anybody. Business was really busy and it was just CDs at borders or whatever. Sure. So I feel like it's back to being connected to people. That's
0: interesting. That's that's true. I mean, I think some people want to cry over spilled milk in the old days. You know, oh, mm-hmm. in the old days we didn't have to blah, blah, blah. And And certainly there's an argument to say like, we're kind of, in a weird way, we're back to like the 1400s where it's like patronage Mm -hmm. of the arts. You know, it's like what we actually need is patrons to help us do the art and put out the art that we do because there isn't enough of a market to support what there was, like let's say in the 90s. You know, those are completely, like you said, you Mm -hmm. didn't have to even worry about it. You just put the CDs out through your distributor and they went into stores and people bought them and that was that. But now it's like we're back to a much more personal connection era.
1: Yeah, I mean... I kind of say that all of us artists are holding out our hand and asking for money, it's just sort of how you do it, you know, where if you're asking for patronage, you're a little bit more obvious, I need your money. And if you're still selling enough records, you're just like, yeah, I sell my records at shows. Right, right. Right. But, you know, everyone doesn't need music, it's the luxury that you're asking people to help you make. Yeah, that's true.
0: So let's talk a little bit about how you find new bands. Is a and a big part of your job, or are you pretty much just finding bands the way that most labels find bands, which is your friends tell you about stuff, or you meet people on the road, or your other bands come to you mm-hmm. with, oh, well, this band is
1: great. I've decided this year that Project has accomplished its mission, which was for 30 years I found unknown bands except for a few, and put out their records and people learned about them and discovered them and that was all great and wonderful and did a lot of that. But, you know, look at the last three years of new bands' sales and they're never in the top 15 or 20 for the year. And they're never in the top 50 after a year. And it's just like, that's not working. It doesn't make sense anymore. I love this band, I'm going to put it out and people are going to stream it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not that they're going to buy it and so... When it gets down to like we're selling ninety CDs on this one, it's just like can't do it anymore. So I've decided, for my own time for working on art, is to focus just on like the top eight or so people. And so I kind of feel like a label doesn't need a band until the band is doing good enough that sort of the band doesn't need the label. You right, know, right? You just it's just been too hard to put out new stuff anymore. Yeah. And so it was in the old days, like you say, yeah, we're playing a show, this band's opening up. And that's how I met Voltaire. He, I don't think he had sent me a cassette before, but he opened up for us and it's like in New York City. And I'm like, wow, everyone's loving this, Mm -hmm. you know? And at that time, it called this sort of gypsy cabaret goth, but he has a lot of humor in it. And so, you know, making fun of, The goth scene making fun of other things he's done a few songs for bill and mandy's excellent adventure that the event they animated for the show Mm -hmm. yeah people are liking this and then we had the cassette in the van and everyone's listening to it every day five times i'm like okay okay (laughs) there's something to this and a band mira who were more hugues were the same thing they they gave us a cassette at a show in tallahassee and so i think many of the bands were from meeting them on tour and i think we talked about this at the music portland meeting the last time a band sent me a demo that I then released the band was, you know, 1993 or something like that. Right. And that's when we all had a lot of patience, I think, for like, (laughs) okay, there's some rough stuff. You're doing some good stuff here. Send me your next demo when you record it. And there was a band, Lycia, who I think they had seven albums on the label and then they were off the label for a while and now they're back on the label. And there was, you know... 10 cassettes before. It was like, okay, we'll pick out of this and put out the first album. Mm -hmm. And I think that method I don't really do with any of the artists. It's like they record an album and I'm more involved in doing the graphics. Mm -hmm. I'm the graphic designer usually. But for the music, it's pretty much they do whatever music they're going to do now. Right. But then like Steve Roach has, I think 75 albums on the label. Wow. And he has his own label that has another 46 releases in the last 20 years and then i think he has over 170 total good lord yeah so he does <laughs> instrumental electronic music he's one of i think only three people on the label who are full-time artists
0: mm. oh that's interesting
1: yeah and so he does makes music all the time he's just an artist like you know yeah. Picasso didn't paint one painting and then wait a year to do another one you know he <laughs> kept painting right and so he's creating all the time
0: yeah that's fascinating. I feel I'm right there with you. I feel that that is really a sad truth of the current economy, that it's putting out new artists is almost not worth it. And that is, that is I think, a, a big problem. I mean, I feel like that's a that's an issue that we're facing right now, that we're going to have to figure out how it shakes out, because it's almost more worth it for artists, young artists, to just put out their own music till they get to a certain mm-hmm. level, almost to the point where they don't need a label, like you said, although I still think You know, once you're doing a whole ton of business, you do need someone to do your business if you're going to plan on actually being an artist. Yeah, make
1: the art. Full-time and make
0: the art. So I do think they will need a a label at some point. But it's like even maybe their first
1: couple records they should put out on their own. Well, I tell some of the bands who I'm not releasing anymore, you need fans more than you need sales or Mm -hmm. money from sales. You need somebody to want your art. Who are the fans of your music? And so many bands are like, I don't know, you sell it. And it's like... (laughs) Legals don't make artists anymore. Right, And so there's this one Italian artist and I put a collection he did on Bandcamp for free for Name Your Price. And let's say we got 350 downloads and 300 bucks. And then his next album I put up for sale and we got 30 sales and around 300 bucks. And it's like, Yeah, but the first one, you now have 300 people who have it in their player who might randomly listen to it. Exactly. And so for so many bands, it's like, put your music up for free on Bandcamp, but even then, who's listening to it? How do they get somebody to actually hear it?
0: Right, right.
1: I can put out that record and five times tell people to go check it out, but then what? Then what, yeah. It doesn't mean anyone will. And I think the other problem is the content around the record that allows us to keep talking about it. If a band just records an album and puts it out... And doesn't do anything else it's like how many times can you say hey this band has an album out
0: right yeah like we know <laughs>
1: yeah we know and we're not really interested <laughs> so what? Yeah. exactly right or and i mean and even so if someone is interested in they go and stream it and that's all they do right so now you know where's your money out of that
0: right i always make the analogy that music scene in the internet is like an ocean and an album is like a rock and people like hold out the rock and then drop it and it's like sploosh and then gone uh-huh and you're like well there you go yeah <laughs> your and, album is out congratulations
1: <laughs> yeah and, and it's like videos or touring or something but if the band once again or the artist doesn't know anyone who likes their music it's like they're not putting i guess their part which is way more than just making the music right but i think many of the artists i work with who've had you know they might have 10 albums out so they've been coming out of the 90s when the label did all the work and right. they're like but that's your job Yours." i'm like <laughs> After 10 albums that there's still not yeah. that kind of interest.
0: Right. Well, and I always say that when I get, you know, demos from kids, I'm like, listen, more than your mom and your like four best friends have got to like your band. Mm-hmm. You know, otherwise this isn't, you know, I know it feels fun to be in a band, but you can't this isn't a job unless you can have fans. And I think you're right. I think once upon a time labels were able to help artists in a different way because let's say you were a fan of Project Records bands. In the 90s, you wouldn't be more likely to go buy a CD, the new CD on Project, because Mm -hmm. you knew that you liked a lot of the other stuff, right? That's right. And you would actually make the sale. Then you would take it home and listen to it and maybe you'd love it and maybe you wouldn't, right? But that is how labels used to be able to help artists make fans. Mm -hmm. And now I don't think we have the same power because so what? Like you said, we tweet about it five times or whatever, you know, maybe we get a couple articles written about it because we have those connections. Then what?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also we had like, then There, I did so many label compilations that we did because we were doing so yeah. much mail order. So if you're yeah. doing, you know, whatever it is, 200 orders a week or whatever, you throw in these free CDs and people discover eight other bands. Exactly. And, yeah. and now you can do a Spotify playlist, but it's still right. getting someone to go to the Spotify. Exactly. Playlist. Because before the internet and even before Borders had it, you're not going to hear a billion bands. Right. You know, that label I like, who has three bands I like, has a compilation that I got for free. Exactly. And now it's like, please listen to my Spotify playlist. (laughs) <laughs> totally.
0: And that's you know, we had we've put out some famous compilations. Like the very first release was called Kill Rock Stars on mm-hmm. Kill Rockstars and that had a Nirvana song on it. I mean, it was huge. It was sold twenty five thousand copies of that in like the first month. And now it's like I wouldn't put out a compilation if you paid me. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And people have come to me and they've been like, Hey, I've got a great idea for a comp. I'm like, Great, do it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like I wouldn't do that. For, I mean, no one would listen to it, you know.
1: Yeah. And we had two compilations we did with Hot Topics. So they were like three dollar counter compilations. Yeah. And I think it was like twenty-two thousand and twenty-five thousand and copies or whatever and it's not because anyone knew the bands it was because they were at the mall and right i'm buying right a shirt and oh a three dollar <laughs> cd why not i'll totally get that yeah. yeah and i guess we also did a christmas compilation with them but there wasn't all the other ways you could discover new music exactly and then for me starting in the 80s it was like fanzines yeah you know you would read op or something in some weird band and you'd write them a letter yeah and buy it you know buy, buy a record in the mail
0: was She by Lycia. You're listening to the future of what? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at MerchTable.com. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Sam Rosenthal of Project Records. You know... I'm never I'm not going to be that person who's like, you know, oh the old days, but it is just interesting that people, you know, I feel like what people should understand is if they actually like music and they like artists, they have to understand how hard it is nowadays to be an artist mm-hmm. because just the the sources of income have completely dried up.
1: Yeah. So for Project Voltaire is about a third of the royalties I pay and Steve Roach is about a third of the royalties I pay and then the other 83 artists are the other third of the royalties I pay. Totally. And, you know, long tail the people at the top and then with black tape it's coming more from the kickstarter kind of thing but i guess i burned myself out on facebook saying that about you know <laughs> if you like that music and that's when more people were legally downloading before spotify it's not helping the artist at all to keep making that music right and there were all the arguments about well they don't need the money anyway and blah 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 it's, it's a free it's a free download what does it cost the artist and it's like all the gear yeah all the time <laughs> you know right i think people would like to be full-time doing creating totally and they'd be making more music but the old days versus now, I mean, I feel like I pay the biggest artist probably about the same as I did in the old days. Mm-hmm. It's just coming from different totally. avenues. And, yeah, you know, like Voltaire has a video on YouTube that gets about a million streams a month. And I complain, hey, this streaming doesn't pay anything. It's like, yeah, it's because you're getting 3,000 plays. I mean, right. you know, 10,000 plays, it doesn't pay anything at that rate. And right. most of the artists aren't going to get up to no, there. definitely not. But then I just saw Steve Roach is getting like, Two hundred and thirty thousand Pandora plays, I think a month Wow, that's it, a lot and and that was a thing. It was just like Pandora, what? <laughs> so I really finally they started making it easier to find the information to dig into that
0: right
1: and one other artist, I'm like, this one record from this one artist is always in my top ten digital, but he's not a popular artist on the label, and finally, I figured out was Pandora, just tons <laughs> and tons of Pandora play, yeah, so that's awesome. yeah, and occasionally odd things happen.
0: But like we're saying, I mean, we're sitting here and I'm like, wow, that's awesome. And you're saying, oh, I discovered this, right? So it's not like we're directing this. Right. It's yeah. just like happens. It's, it's you know, it goes out into the world and you don't have control over it. And I feel like that's really different, you know, because once upon a time you had a lot more control over just, you know, putting it out in the marketplace and, you know, maybe doing retail, like a little bit of retail marketing in certain areas yeah. where it's like, oh, I know this band has a lot of fans in Chicago. So we're going to put a little extra money behind these three stores or whatever. You know, and now it's like, we put it out there and we're like, crossing our fingers and just being like, I don't know, you know. Something
1: weird. Well, the Voltaire one, it was actually a student made an animated video to a song off his second album. So this is from 2000, Mm -hmm. the album. And... What, what's all this money what's What's this coming from and then you dig and you're like okay it's this video and then I asked Paul he's like oh yeah yeah that was some student video that she made and I'm like you know it's getting like a million plays a month <laughs> you know and it's just you couldn't plan it
0: no you can't plan it and yeah. that's the part that's weird
1: is that we can't plan it we just have to be like
0: okay yeah. throw it out there in the universe and see what happens
1: oh well even gosh. Steve Roach's Grammy nomination I mean yeah, we didn't even know about it it wasn't <laughs> like we knew it was in the running until it went out for the vote oh wow and it was just like what happened? So you don't even know who submitted it? Oh, now I know who submitted it, oh, yeah. Okay. But the, you didn't at the time. No, I didn't. Oh, and, fascinating. And the person who submitted it was like, I'll keep it a secret and it'll be fun. <laughs> it's like... Okay. So yeah, so <laughs> it was suddenly a lot of work because, yeah. you know, first trying to get press and then also just dealing with what was happening around it. Yeah. And, and once again, I mean, he's been putting out albums for, since 82, so right. many years. And so when the nomination I've discovered, like 150 albums are in the first running. I mean, it can't be much more than a beauty contest. Oh, I know this name and I know this name. Who's listened to all 150 albums in the new age category?
0: No, definitely not. Maybe yeah.
1: when it gets down to the five, then sure. people, okay, I'm going to, this is my category. I'll listen right. through and see. But it was just a strange fluke. Even though the label was goth, I hung out with punks when I was yeah. in the 80s. And it's like the Grammys, who cares? You know, that's <laughs> not punk. Right. So it was It was a who cares until something gets nominated. And you're like, right. oh, I see then what happens. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I mean, it's kind of cool to get nominated for a Grammy. Oh, yeah, because then forever you're a Grammy-nominated artist.
0: Yeah, which is, you know, a good distinction, Mm -hmm. for sure.
1: For all the work he's done, I mean, he's made so much music, and he has so many people who love what he does. Right. I mean, there are a few records that came out on Project that came out because they were, you know, related to somebody who was related on the label. or But I just love Steve's music, and when I hear it on Soma FM, which is a streaming station, it's like, hmm, this is good. I bet it's Steve. I looking at Steve because, you know, it's just... <laughs> you just like his music. He just, well, he just appeals... His music appeals really strongly to certain people where yeah. he can put out six albums a year and the people who love what he does will buy it. Or now it's even easier. People can just stream it if yeah. they're not going to buy everyone.
0: Wow. That's amazing. So do you have any last words about the future? I mean, you mm-hmm. know, you've been doing this for 35 years and seriously for 27 years full-time. So, like do you want to keep doing this for 25 more years or, you know, are you ready to take a break? Like, what are you thinking?
1: I think everyone I talk to who's on a label this long is ready to take a break. <laughs> I mean, it is ultimately doing the same thing that you created for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, as I said, I didn't think there was going to be even five more years a few years ago. Right. So I feel in a much better place here in Portland where I can const- I can work a lot of my own stuff too. right where in New York, it was just trying to make money to stay in the space. Oh, God, to space. Keep your, just pay your rent. Yeah, just yeah. pay rent, pay the employees. And then also, you're still making 5,000 copies of an album and hoping people buy it. Right. So now you can be much more realistic. And so it's really, like I said, it's sort of saying the first 35 years were successful at what they were about, and now it's more focusing down on you know key artists and less releases. And I'm kind of getting more into the publicity side of it again and contacting people and doing things where I either... Shay who worked for me was doing it or it just sort of didn't happen as much as it could have. So I think I'm trying to think versus the old days. I just think things are easier now. I feel like I'm paying people just about as much as I ever have. So I once again, the top top tier artists, I feel like it's it's not embarrassing. Like here's your five dollar check, you're right. the biggest artist on the label. <laughs> so I feel I feel it still serves a purpose and it's doing a good thing. Right. And you know this feeling, I love this record. I'm going to get a thousand for myself, you know. (laughs) Or I can love this guy's record and buy their record and then focus on the ones that are actually the ones that matter to the label and to what I'm doing. Right.
0: Well, Sam Rosenthal, thank you so much for being with us today on The Future of What.
1: Thank you. It was fun.
0: was Liminal by Steve Roach. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Steve Roach. Steve, welcome to The Future of What?
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: So we are doing a label spotlight on project records, and you have put out, Sam says, something like 75 records on project.
2: Yeah, we've uh, <laughs> got a long history, a long, great history. And you know, a big piece of that is that he supports my passion for creating at the level that I do. We've managed to figure out a productive way to keep that flow going and and not have to put uh, a governor on my creativity. So it's been a great, it's a great partnership.
0: That's awesome. Yes, he likened you to Picasso in that, you know, Picasso just painted, he didn't paint one painting and then wait a year to paint another one.
2: That is absolutely right. And I've always used the analogy of being a visual artist, sculptor, photographer. And if you would ask any of those people in their creative arts, you know, what have you done in the last, year and they if they said i did one photograph or one painting you, you would just think they were in cafe culture the whole time or whatever you know not really engaged and immersed and possessed by their creativity and their in that place that some people tap into at that level and for me being an electronic musician being you know a solo artist and having basically a house that's a studio every room has got a studio in it so there's always different things happening simultaneously like if you go into a artist gallery you might have might see he or she with you know a lot of different canvases going or different mediums going all at the same time and they all feed each other and that's part of the energy that I stir up by having these different pieces going that seem sometimes incongruent to each other but they really feed each other you know very dynamic rhythmic trance type pieces and then at the same time in the other room could be something that's completely suspended in time and slow motion and could listen to it you know for for three weeks straight or something wow. so it's, you know it's really a very cool kind of agility to move between these worlds is you know it's something that I discovered early on when I started in the early 80s that it's just that one feeds the other so dramatically and rather than compartmentalize it or, or say now I'm only doing this or only that you know that's a big piece of what has expanded my vocabulary. And if you were to sample pieces of my work through the last over 30 years plus, you know, 35 years, you'd see, you know, very wide dynamic range, but you know, it's very cool because it's really ultimately about expanding yourself as a person and as a creative soul and letting that freedom, you know, go without the restriction of a record label has been really, you know, vital to the nourishment of that. And that's where we come back around to Project and to Sam and how how important that relationship has been. And before that, I worked with in the more traditional labels with independent, but at the time, you know, very high visibility and independent labels. And that particular paradigm before the internet through the 80s into the 90s was the model where you release an album and then you let it develop in, in the public's eyes and ears, so to speak, for maybe up to a year and a half. And that was absolutely like I was suffocating. It was like, you you know, you're told not, you're too inspired, stop breathing. <laughs> <laughs> so my response was very defiant in terms of like, not going to comply to these kind of values that were starting to slip away anyway, as those labels started to slip away.
0: So I have to ask you just for my own curiosity, do you move between your different rooms during the day very spontaneously or do you have like a set order? I mean, how do you do it?
2: That's a good question. And before you called, I was in what's called the live room and it's where my whole live rig is set up. And I'll go in there just instantaneously. I'll be you know doing things that busy work in the day, working in some business things or some calls like this. And then I'll just go in there instantly and it's all up and running. And it's just, it's like, stepping into a time machine and then you're instantly I'm in that mode of just dramatically going for it, create you know, playing live, and then I'll shut that down. I'll just instantly pull the faders down sometimes just like a like a guillotine chop, you know? <laughs> and then go into and then go to the next room and then slowly fade up, you know, one of these infinite sound worlds that are happening live off of the analog modular or Something like that, and so again it's it's just it's very organic and very spontaneous and very much based on again this I use this word agility, but i part of the discipline that I explore is moving between these different states very succinctly, where you dedicate yourself to a ten or fifteen minute space sometimes and then you're completely immersed in that, and that could be again very dramatically different from what's going on in the the atmospheric space and the atmospheric room. Right now, there's three different rooms: the main studio, the live room, and then what I call the analog cave, where there's <laughs> and there's analog stuff everywhere. But when you enter into that room, it's a smaller room, but it's got this kind of more womb-like feeling to it. So, it, and just having different spaces to work in supports different states of creativity and sonic awareness and physical kind of reaction to that. Because I have a real physical reaction to sound and music. So, I, you know, I have the ability here to, at my house to play, you know, at a loud volume if I need to, or, to, you know, of course, quiet volume isn't going to affect anybody, but I have enough space around me in my, in my desert home here to, you know, to let it rip. Sometimes at, you know, 11 or 12 at night, I'll, I'm almost, you know, I I know I can play louder, but and I don't know if, they can hear it in the canyons but <laughs> you know they just, just uh, managed to create the kind of reality that supports the you know that kind of freedom so that's when you know when I'm preparing for concerts that's a whole other piece where I'll be working on albums in the main room but then I'll start maybe working at 3 or 4 in the afternoon till about midnight you know working on on the set in the live room and then something always comes a lot of material comes out of preparing for live and then i you know i can record it instantly and then take it into the main room and then maybe enhance that or expand it and then inject that back into the set you know back in the other room so it's it's really it's very non-linear and it's very much about experience where a lot of things are happening um, simultaneously and it's like kind of you reach up and pull this one down out of the ether and work on that for a while while this other one's brewing and simmering here and Sometimes I'll have things running in one room, you know, atmospheres or zones and drones. I'll leave it up and running and I'll be in the other room and I'll hear that happening in the other room. And I might start working in on something rhythmic, not intentionally, but I'll, I've got some feeling coming through for some kind of tribal trance sort of thing or whatever. And then those two actually start to merge together. And then I might combine those, you know, by bringing the atmospheres, recording those and bringing them you know, back into the main room. But sometimes hearing things off from a distance, you know, it it, it inspires a different uh, response to a part that might fit into it, rather than being having direct, full, full-on listening awareness, like between the speakers listening. If you hear it from a distance, different things are, you know, acknowledged. So
0: wow. Well, Steve, not only is this like the most interesting way of working that I've ever heard a musician talk about, but I kind of want to come like hang out at your house and
2: watch this happen.
0: <laughs> this sounds amazing.
2: Well, it is. It's you know, if you're ever in Tucson or in the area, you know, give me a call. You oh my
0: God. That'd be fabulous. Well, unfortunately I have to bring us back to the sort of more mundane because this is a music business podcast, unfortunately.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I know um, we were going off on a tangent, but that's what I do. Like in my rooms here, you know. So yeah, you asked, no, it I, love I it. shared. So, but no, yeah. I completely here to tame it back down and get back to you know project <laughs> and all of that. Well,
0: I definitely want to ask you. Just the the listeners to this podcast are are people who are music business professionals and and musicians at all stages in their careers. And, you know, one of the things that Sam and I talked about a whole bunch in our interview was just the changing landscape of the music business and the fact that you don't make money the same ways anymore. I mean, people don't just go out and buy CDs or LPs the way they once did. How has that affected you as clearly a lifelong musician and someone who, you know, obviously does this for a living?
2: Well, it's it's affected me in, in very positive ways, but it demands that, you know, as an artist, a big big part of that is your ability to continue to keep your finger on the pulse with with the business side of things and and stay current and open and you know continue to look at innovative ways to keep reaching your audience because it's really about creating an experience and in my case these kind of peak or refined expansive experiences and then sharing that with people, with listeners, with receptive listeners. That's not that has not changed since my first release in nineteen eighty one. That that impulse and that circle to complete is still the number one priority. So how are we doing it now without just saying opening up the house and say, Everything's for free, come and get it, you know? Because that's a, another part of the paradigm that we're seeing is that things that are free can you know at Bandcamp if you put an album up for free it can become you know the best seller, quote unquote for the week you know right but it it also you know in understanding how that works where you you know share something like that I mean that's it's just it's the pragmatic idea of putting up albums that you charge for and then at certain times there's albums or catalog titles that you you know I'll put up and and put them up as a name-your-price kind of situation. So, I mean, these are small examples of ways to stay current in in that way, where you're playing with those different ways of sharing your work with people while maintaining a sense of value to it, because of how music has been certainly devalued so dramatically through the same medium which has empowered me as an independent artist, which is the Internet. You know, If it wasn't for the Internet, I would not have this freedom that I have. I mean, we, like I was very early on, you know, my first website presence was in the, in the mid nineties, maybe like about 97 or eight was when my website went up and we, and I had tech savvy fans that came in and helped me. And, you know, my main webmaster still, I mean, he worked at Apple for years and had the heyday of that whole Reality and so he was right there. So I had a lot of guys helping to help me establish that you know profile and, and move out of the the old world music business ghetto of having you know very strict kind of restrictions on how you create and how you get it to people. So, but the innovations that you know are around us every day and ways to merge with that are concerns that Sam and I have daily, weekly. You know, meetings on all the time. We're always checking in, and we're always getting a sense of which way the wind's blowing and how how quickly it could change. So you really, we really can't hold on to too many rigid thoughts of the way things are were you know two months ago. Even you've, you've got to continue to keep looking at how quickly things are changing and how we can adapt and fit into that, and and continue to keep getting our the, what we love to do out, out to people.
0: You know? Absolutely. It definitely seems like one of the pieces of the internet's, you know, form today has been specifically really useful to you, which is that, you know, you're a very prolific artist and people are constantly wanting something new. So the fact that you're constantly putting stuff out is probably actually a real plus.
2: Absolutely. And it's 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 a very symbiotic, you know, wonderful relationship that's been built. And But like today, for example, Tuesday, Tuesdays and Thursdays are still mail order day at my place here. And I have an assistant that comes in and she helps, you know, she fills the orders. And and so we're doing physical orders here twice a week for years and years now. It's just, that part is not, I mean, it's certainly diminished. The numbers have gone down, but the dedication of that particular audience is there. And and so as you hear, you know, in a lot of the trades and whatnot, that CDs are, for example, are dying and LPs are doing their thing for as long as they are now. Or you know, even cassettes. I got on the cassette train, a, you know, a little while, a couple of years ago, or a year and a half ago, and out of popular requests, and started doing cassette runs, and then those started selling out. You know, smaller runs, but in terms of CDs, that's still my, the biggest medium for physical copies. It's moving from here. I've got, you know, I have LP. Releases now and cassettes, but the CD audience that's still there, who still appreciates that medium, is still vibrant and smaller, but really dedicated. And it's a big part of the income. You know, the multiple streams of income is that is the mantra for an artist like myself is, you know, all these different areas from licensing to self-produce. You know, I have a, my label, my own label, I have 40, 45 releases on that label plus Project, you know, the big catalog we have there. And then before Project, I worked with Fathom Hearts of Space Records in San Francisco, and maybe there's a dozen or so releases with them. And then Celestial Harmonies out of Europe, Germany, and and Tucson is where they're based. And that was another, you know, large body of work from the beginning of my career. But the idea that CDs are fading out, I mean, my fellow colleague musicians that are, deciding to not put their next album out on CD, I really ask them to look at that closer because you're kind of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy by not producing that even in a small run to keep that audience there with you. And then if you just decide to stop producing that, then that you will be instrumental in, in killing it off, you know? So Absolutely. Just now we're, you know, like the releases with Sam, we'll look at Which ones we feel like are wanting to be in this? You know, what mediums do we go to? Is this one? You know, all the the mediums that have existed since you know the 80s. We go do we do cassette, LP, CD, all the digital formats, high resolution offerings that we also have 2496. You know, for some titles. So every release, if it's a re-release or a you know some of my earlier releases that have obtained, uh, you know, quite a status of being like these kind of classics in in my genre. For example, we look at that as something that could be deserving of, you know, a a larger scale package or, you know, it was a full treatment of gatefold LP and cassette and all of that sort of thing. So you're really going into the Wayback Machine, plus you're completely on the front edge of now, combining all of these different ways of, again, delivering what ultimately, it has to be some kind of experience that people want. It's got, it has to have that kind of energy, you know, infused into it, or it's all for naught, you know. <laughs> That's for sure.
0: Well, Steve Roach, thanks so much for being with us today on The Future of What. It's been such an honor to talk to you.
2: Appreciate it. Thanks for the time and for reaching out.
0: We're excited to announce that we have a new podcast series, Girl Germs. Check out the trailer now.
3: We're so cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're so cool, cool. We're so cool, yeah, yeah. F- you too, cool schmoe.
0: Twenty-five years ago, seminal riot girl band Bratmobile released their debut album, Potty Mouth.
1: I'm sure he told you what we paid him for recording the record:
2: one piece of pizza and one bottle of hair dye.
0: Along with their contemporaries in Bikini Kill and Heavens to Betsy. Molly Newman, Alison Wolfe, and Aaron Smith pushed the boundaries of music and politics, challenging ideas of who could play music and hold power on stage. These Riot Girl pioneers championed self-expression and visibility for women and girls in the scene, on and off stage. You know, that the models for being a, a woman musician, in my view, and my sort of like small world view then,
2: like not really being a punker yet, was singer-songwriter's, and you know R&B performers and artists.
0: Yeah, it was pretty political. Like we thought it was important to have an all-girl band and to work with other women.
3: I think it's important for young girls to be able to see kind of images of
0: themselves or ideas of themselves to think that they can do it too. In the early 1990s, this underground feminist punk movement seems to have been just the right idea at just the right time. This whole idea of Red Girl, it was so instantaneous. It was so, like, everyone was was in. So there was, you know, there were records being put out, there were shows, there was Girl Night. It all happened within a kind of a matter of months, you know. And the media situation was it was, it was pretty intense. They emerged into my world like such a breath of fresh air. Not just a breath, but a hurricane of fresh air on this podcast, Molly, Allison, and Aaron reflect on how the band got together, recording their first album, and the scene that inspired them. We'll also hear from their peers, journalists, and younger artists about Potty Mouth's continuing legacy.
3: All of those bands just like completely changed my life because all of a sudden I was like, these are people who look like me and you know maybe like sound like me and... They are, like, outwardly identifying as, like, queer. I'm not saying it sounded easy, but it sounded, like, accessible in a way. It's like, oh, you can just do a band
0: with just a guitar and drums. That's so cool. This is Girl Germs, a short podcast series from Kill Rock Stars. Subscribe to this show and find out more at killrockstars.com. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Black Tape for a Blue Girl, Lycia, Steve Roach, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what, and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week. Can
3: I have a taste of your-